is Nicole Pitches and you are listening to the Reasonable Woman podcast, a legal podcast for all you law enthusiasts out there. As you've probably guessed from the title, this episode is a little different from the previous ones I've done. So far all the episodes have been strictly legal, but I also wanted to release weekly, or maybe even more than weekly if it's a particularly exciting week, episodes addressing current business, legal, financial or technological topics. For law students this will be pretty useful in that it will elevate your commercial awareness and not just strictly to law but to other subjects. And to those who are not studying law, you might just generally be interested in what I have to talk about. The aim is to choose a topical or current event and to explore it. As with the other episodes, I'm going to try and keep it as concise as possible. However, of course, if you'd like me to continue and make a longer episode on a particular topic, do let me know at thereasonablepodcast at gmail.com. Just a quick reminder that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is provided for solely educational purposes. Any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Now, I chose Google's quantum supremacy claim as, while it sounded all impressive and whatnot, I had no idea, and I'm pretty sure most of us out there had no idea what it actually means in a practical sense. And while I personally love technology law, I am not a programmer or coder or whatever one needs to be to fully understand this, so this is an entirely new topic for me as well, and I thought it would be perfect to explore. And while this episode is not particularly or necessarily legal, um, as an aspiring tech lawyer, I really just wanted to find out more, and I thought I would share what I found here. So, on the 23rd of October of this year, Google announced on its Google AI blog that it has achieved quantum supremacy using a programmable superconducting processor. But what on earth does this actually mean, and why is it significant? An amazing article that manages to explain quantum supremacy to laypersons is written by, um, I've got no idea how to pronounce the name, but I'll give it my best shot, Devin Koldewey on TechCrunch.com. And as always, I'll leave the link in the description box. He begins the article by reminding us of Alan Turing's vision of a universal computing machine, which became a reality after World War II. Koldewey states that with this evolution of computing came the idea that, quote, if it can be represented by numbers, we can simulate it. And although we can do all sorts of amazing things now, from voice synthesis, 3D geometry, and even complex mathematics, we still can't do all of it. Things like mathematical paradoxes remain out of reach of computational solving power, and until now, quantum physics was also one of those exceptions. Coldjury reminds us of how Richard P. Feynman, who has once been called potentially the greatest theoretical physicist of the late 20th century, once envisioned that if you wanted to, quote, simulate a quantum system, you'll need a quantum system to do it with. Of course, a quantum computer didn't exist then, but the idea definitely spurred on the computer scientists and theorists. So now we're left with various questions. Is it at all possible that with enough ordinary computing power, we can simulate nature down to its core? And if that were possible, would it take eons to even get to the slightest bit of progress? Would it ever be possible to create a computer that can solve this problem in a reasonable amount of time? Koldewey writes that in order to prove Feynman correct, theorising just isn't enough. You'd have to first show that there is indeed a problem that is not only difficult, but impossible for ordinary computers to solve, even with, quote, incredible levels of power. Then you'd actually have to create such a computer that not, not only can, but does solve the problem. This would be an extraordinary feat, and this is exactly what Google and NASA claim to have done. The very simplest I can try and explain the difference between quantum computers and normal computers is that while the normal classical computers have binary bits, bits being what computers use to process information, that signify either a one or a zero, 
Quantum computers, quote, have a much more complex unit, and it represents a much more complex mathematical space than simply zero or one. It's more like, again to quote, complex linear combination of both. These bits then use what is called the entanglement phenomenon of quantum physics to produce a quantum superposition. These bits, or qubits that they're now calling them, can then produce new and interesting results, which was simply not possible to do before. So this is supposedly how quantum computers are meant to work, but please do bear in mind that I've summarized it a lot and in a way that I hope is easy enough for everyone to understand. The way Forbes expresses it in an article written by Alex Knapp, uh, the link is in the description box, is that Google managed to quote, connect 53 of Sycamore's qubits, Sycamore being the name of Google's quantum chip, and use them to detect patterns in large and seemingly random numbers. The Summit, a supercomputer which is currently rated the most powerful single processing system in the world, solved this problem in around 3 minutes 20 seconds, with Google's research team calculating that if this problem were to be attempted to be solved by a classical computer, it would take 10,000 years. IBM, however, disputes this and claims this can be done on a classical computer in two and a half days, with, quote, far greater fidelity. Google is also not alone in the efforts to reach quantum supremacy. In the very same week of Google's announcements, IonQ, a quantum software company, raised $55 million from Samsung to speed up its quantum system development. CEO Peter Chapman claims that IonQ will start offering quantum's cloud service for its hardware at the beginning of 2020. IBM has already started offering their quantum cloud service, which is currently being used by various enterprise customers. So why on earth am I talking about quantum supremacy when quantum physics is certainly not my field of expertise, as was probably evidenced by the way I attempted to explain Google's experiment? What I find particularly interesting in this technological breakthrough is that no one yet knows how it is going to impact society, business law, and so much more. Forbes mentions how quantum computing will of course impact businesses, especially in logistics optimization, chemical simulation, and machine learning applications. Business Insider lists the seven awesome ways quantum computers will change the world, mentioning, quote, really accurate weather forecasting, more efficient drug discovery, and the accelerating of space exploration. Peter Knight, a senior physicist at the Imperial College London, mentioned one specific area that quantum computing might threaten, data security. Knight believes that while quantum's computing potential threats to data security processes like encryption is still way ahead of us, it's definitely still a possibility to consider. Data concerns have hit an all-time high recently, especially given the high-profile case of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica last year in 2018, so this is something technology lawyers are going to have to keep a very close eye on. So there you have it, something that was just initially a theory is ever closer to becoming reality. I hope this has given you all something to think about. And as always, thank you ever so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.